is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. All right, open in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. I don't think Peter ever intended to be a rabbi. His father was a fisherman. Most likely his granddaddy had been a fisherman prior to that. And I imagine that Peter just thought that's what he was always going to be, was a fisherman. Most professions back then were passed down from generation to generation. You learned your profession from your father. And uh, so I doubt Peter ever thought he'd be a rabbi. The only folks that became rabbis were those who had a proclivity towards learning and scholarship. From what I understand, anyway, young Jewish boys went to Jewish school. They memorized a good portion of the, of the law. And those that were really exceptional about it, different rabbis might uh, invite them to become one of their disciples. And obviously, Peter didn't make the cut when he was small, and uh, so he was fishing. The day his brother Andrew came and got him and said, hey, I think we found the Messiah King. You know, I thought this week about what Peter's reaction to that may have been. I mean, was he just curious, you know, with Andrew's statement or was he really seeking after the Messiah as well? Remember, he hadn't become a disciple of John the Baptist like evidently his brother Andrew uh, had. But on the day that Jesus filled Peter's boat, remember the story? On the day he filled his boat to almost sinking, Peter had an encounter with Jesus that changed his life. He ended up on his knees saying, Jesus, get away from me because I'm a sinful man. And Jesus said, Peter, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And that very day, Peter left his nets, his fish, his boat, boats, and he became a disciple of Rabbi Jesus and began to follow Jesus wherever he went. Peter was a doer and he wasn't so much a contemplator. As we read about his life in the New Testament, we find him to be impulsive. He would speak quite quickly without necessarily thinking. He reacted immediately. He was almost the opposite of being deliberate in how he responded to things. He was often the first to answer Jesus' questions. It was he who said, hey, if it's really you out there, bid me come to you and I'll get out of the boat and I'll walk to you. He was the only one to get out of the boat. He was the one who cut off the servant's ear there in the garden of Gethsemane. He was only one of two men who followed Jesus where the other one had some relationship to the high priest. Peter did not, but he followed Jesus to the arrest. He was the one who denied Jesus there at that same incident or that same event. And he was also only one of two that having been told that Jesus has been risen from the dead by by Mary and other ladies, he's one of only two disciples that apparently ran to the tomb to confirm their story. And now we find on this day, Peter is about to die. He says death is imminent. God's told him that. Maybe just days away, we don't know for sure. But he writes a second letter to people that he's already written who live in Asia Minor, which would have been Turkey, our present day Turkey. Seems likely to me that he's writing to people that he had visited, although there's no record. We don't have any record of that. But it just seems to me that Peter is writing folks that he's met. And so, you know, these were some well-established churches. Maybe he's writing them because they're the most established churches of his day. But, but it sounds and seems to me that he's actually writing people that he's met, some of them anyway. 
Chapters are artificial in our Bible. Chapters weren't added to these letters until the 13th century. Verses weren't added to the, until the 16th century. And so there are no chapters and there are no verses when we come to chapter 3 in Peter's letter. But in chapter 3, and the reason why they put a chapter division there is because Peter is now beginning to draw his letter to an end. And so we're going to look at chapter 3 this morning, and I'm, I'm really encouraged. I'm, hope, I'm hoping that I can encourage you and be animated as I've been in my heart this week studying this passage. But, but to help us understand it, I'm going to divide chapter 3 into four headings. These are Jimmy's headings. You won't necessarily find them in your, in your Bibles, but these are my headings to help us organize our thoughts. And the first heading that I'm giving you is, Be awake. This would be a heading that I'd put on the first verses of chapter 3. So chapter 3 of 2 Peter begins like this. I'm reading from the CSB. I'm always going to be using that for the time being. So if you want to get such a Bible or look it up in your electronic Bibles, it's it's the Christian Standard Bible. Dear friends, this is now the second letter I have written to you. In both letters, I want to stir up you to sincere understanding by way of reminder, so that you recall the words previously spoken by the holy prophets and the command of our Lord and Savior given through your apostles. As Peter begins, he says, hey guys, this is, uh, this is a second letter, but in both letters, the first one and in this one, what I wanted to do is I wanted to stir you up. Now, if you were here for chapter one, you'll remember that those terms, that word stir you up, that he was saying, I want to wake you up. I want to arouse you from sleep, or maybe even I, I don't want you to go to sleep. I want to keep you awake. When I was young, when Ann and I were young, we traveled back and forth to Huntsville, Alabama with our children. We had six of them. It was easier to travel in the middle of the night because I made beds in the back of the van and they slept all the way to, uh, to Huntsville. And then we'd give them to their grandparents and, and we'd go sleep. And, uh, but on the trip, I always wanted Ann to sleep so that when, when I felt sleepy, she could drive and I could sleep, but she could never go to sleep. She always was sitting there to stir me up, to make sure that I stayed awake. It's very easy to be lulled to sleep physically, and it's very easily to, to be, it's very easy to be lulled to sleep spiritually. As the mundane of life just comes at us day after day, wave after wave breaking on the shores of our life, it's really easy to forget what truly matters. It's really easy to forget what we ought to focus on and to become spiritually asleep. Peter says, I've tried really hard in my letters to wake you up. I've tried really hard in my letters to encourage you not to go to sleep, and, but, in, in, but to know what really matters and to stay focused on that. I think Peter and Anne had the same goal, a little bit different, but they had the same goal. Anne wanted to keep me awake physically. Peter wants them to stay awake spiritually. He did that, he says, by refreshing their minds, by reminding them the words of the prophets of the Old Testament. Remember that from chapter 1? He's repeating himself. I wanted, to, I wanted to remind you that the words of the Old Testament fulfilled what Jesus did. I mean, Jesus was the fulfillment of everything they taught. And then he says, and I wanted to renew your mind with the commands of Jesus, the things that Jesus told us apostles. You know, I wanted to remind you of those things so that you'll stay awake. And this is why a couple of weeks ago I said to you, and I'm going to repeat it again this morning, it's why you ought to make this gathering on Sunday mornings a priority to yourselves. 
It's why you ought to say, this is going to be primal in my life. I am going to, I am going to commit myself to gathering with God's people because of two reasons. One, I want to be awake and I want to be reminded of the things of the prophets and the words of the apostles. And furthermore, I want to remind others. I want to keep other people awake. I want to use my words in my life to wake up other people. And so I, I just encourage you to, to make this gathering on Sundays and, and even other smaller gatherings, make them priorities in your life so that you be awake, so you stay awake. Number two heading would be be aware. Verse 3, above all, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, where is his coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. Maybe his thoughts are, I want you guys to stay awake, to be awake so that you can be alert. If you were here last week, we talked about the false prophets. And he said, be alert. There's false prophets out there. Not everybody who claims to speak for God actually speaks for God. So be alert. Here he says, be alert. Because in these last days, people are going to come and they're going to scoff. And they're going to make fun. And they're going to deride you. They're going to tease you about the second coming of Jesus saying, where is it? I mean, we've been, we've been ever since the beginning of all creation, people live, die, and nobody gets resurrected. And where is this return uh, of Jesus? Now, Peter tells us of these guys. He says they're motivated by their own evil desires. So their scoffing comes from some evil place in their heart. It is likely they're saying something like this. You say that you follow Jesus and that you should live for Jesus and that you should obey Jesus and you should, you should be a follower, disciple of Jesus. Hey, but where is this coming? You also keep telling us that he's coming back, but where is he? Yeah, we haven't seen him. And just from the beginning, this is how it's always been. Everybody lives, dies, and that's it. They don't get risen again. They don't rise again. Where is his coming? Where is this resurrection from the dead that you're promising? And, uh, and they point out that this is how it's always been. Now, historians say that Peter died in the late 60s. Now, remember this. It's in 70 AD that Jerusalem will be destroyed. Uh, so that means that roughly 30 years have gone by since Jesus came and, and where they find themselves now, 30 years. And, and so they're saying 30 years have gone by and they're scoffing and they're making fun of his disciples saying 30 years have gone by. Where is Jesus? Now, people, uh, Peter mentions, excuse me, Peter mentions that the scoffers uh, are going to come mocking in the last days. Now, some people think the last days are from the time Jesus was here until he comes again, that we're in the last days. We've been in the last days for two millennia. Others believe that the last days that Peter's referring to are the last days of Israel as a nation or as Judaism, as a religion or the first covenant, because in just a few days, a few years, depending on when Peter is writing this, Israel will be destroyed. The temple will be destroyed and the first covenant will come to an end. And so, and so he could be referring to that. But regardless of how you interpret last days, I think God and Peter are writing about this, this issue of mocking the return of Jesus because whether it's 30 years or 300 years, 
it's been two millennia since Jesus came. And so I believe what Peter's giving to every one of us. And so here, pay attention, everyone. Jesus is giving to you an answer to the scoffers. He's giving maybe an answer to your own doubts this morning, okay? So maybe, maybe the doubts creep into the back of your mind. Hey, where is Jesus, man? I mean, it hasn't been 30 years. It hasn't been 30 years. It's been, saying 300 years. It's been two millennia. Where, where is he? Well, Peter, Peter wants to address this very issue, and he wants to tell them why. Now, now listen, people are still mocking us today. Bertrand Russell was a famous atheist of the 20th century. Uh, he died, I think, around 1950. But he was a political activist, philosopher, educator. Here's something he wrote. I am concerned with Christ as he appears in the Gospels. Taking the Gospel narrative as it stands, there one does find some things that do not seem to be very wise. For one thing, Jesus certainly thought that his second coming would occur in the clouds of glory before the death of all the people who were living at that time. There are a great many texts that prove that. He says, for instance, you shall not have gone over all the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. Then he says, there are some standing here which shall not taste death until the Son of Man comes in his kingdom. And there are a lot of places where it is quite clear that he believed that his second coming would happen during the lifetime of many then living. That was the belief of his early followers, and it was the basis of a good deal of Jesus' moral teaching. Now, Russell was from the 20th century. We're in the 21st century, 20 years into it. And, and you know, people in the 21st century, they're still, Bart Ertman, for instance, are still saying the same thing. They're still mocking us, saying, where is the return of Jesus? So that brings me to the third heading, and maybe I think the most important. No, the third and the fourth are the most important. But here's the third heading of this chapter, and it would be, be armed be armed. In his first letter, Peter told his readers, he said in chapter 3, verse 5, always be ready to give an answer to the people who ask you about your hope. So that's what Peter's now going to do. He is going to arm us with a threefold response to the mockers. Now, I hope this will satisfy you if you're struggling with doubts. I hope this will satisfy you. But this is Peter's answer to the mockers, and this should be our answer to the mockers as well. And it's really good, in my opinion. Here's, here's what he says. First, be armed with this understanding. These mockers, they disregard the Word of God. In verse 5, they deliberately overlook this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth has brought about, the earth was brought about from water and through water. Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. The first way we deal with mockers is we say, or we recognize they're disregarding what God has said. And the first thing Peter does is he goes back to the Old Testament and he talks about how God created the earth out of water. Now, you know, again, I don't know, I'm not trying to be specific here, but in Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 2, I think it is, it says the earth was flooded with water and the Spirit was over top of the water. And, and so this, I think, is what Peter is referring to, that God brought forth the earth from the water. And, and then by the time we get to chapter 6, I think it is, or chapter 5, God's going to destroy the earth with water. 
And he does. He destroys the, the earth by flooding the planet again and by killing all of mankind except for those that he chooses to save. Peter says they disregard the word of God and he says they deliberately do it. They know what God has said, but they're deliberately choosing to ignore it. They're deliberately choosing to disregard the fact that God destroyed the world with water. But then Peter makes this statement. They disregard the word of God that God is going to destroy it in the future with fire. Now, in the past, God destroyed the world with water, and then he promised he'd never do that again. He didn't promise that he wouldn't destroy the world again. He said, I'll never flood it again. So he's never going to flood the world again. But that doesn't mean that he's not going to destroy it by fire. And that's what Peter says he's, he's, he's going to do. In fact, he says it here. By the same word of God, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the, of the ungodly. So there's coming a day of fire. Now, what is Peter alluding to? Why does Peter say this? Where is he reaching back into the word of God and, and finding this? Well, I don't know. I don't know clearly anyway. But I think he could be alluding to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, the prophet says this, For look, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. You will trample the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day I am preparing, says the Lord of armies. Now, I can't be sure. But I think this is what Peter is alluding to. And he says of these men that mock the return of Jesus, he says, you, they are deliberately disregarding what God says he will do in the future when he will destroy all the wicked with fire. Second, this is, how, this is how we respond to the mockers. Number one, they disregard the word of God. Number two, they discount the nature of God. Look at verse eight. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Now, I don't think Peter's trying to be dismissive here. And I think this is very, very hard for us to really fully comprehend. We don't know life without the constraints of time. We don't know life without things having a beginning and, and having an end. That's why the, the fact that God sits outside of time and, and, and he's, not, he's not affected by time, that's why that's really hard for us to see, hard for us to understand. But it's true. If you can imagine that time is a way for us to measure what's happening in our lives now, imagine if there is no beginning or no end to anything. It's too hard for us to comprehend. And this is why when, when Moses says to God, God, tell me who's sending me. Tell me, who's, tell me who's sending me back to Israel. Who are you? You remember what God names himself? The, the ever-present I am, you know, because I always exist. I always am. That's what he calls himself. <clears throat> For a person who is not affected by time, a day is the same as a thousand years. And a thousand years is as a day for someone not affected by time. For those of us who are mortal, we are affected by time. And so the Bible says 
number your days. I mean, be very conscious of your days. There's coming a time in the resurrection when, I, when we'll be made immortal like the Lord Jesus and like God, never to die again. But right now, we're mortal and we're going to die. And so we're to number our days because we have a beginning and, and we have an end. Peter's point to them is this. 30 years seems like a long time. 2,000 years seems like a long time to you, doesn't it? It does to me. Man, Jesus, where have you been? 2,000 years. But you know, as far as God's concerned, sitting outside of time, 30 years, 2,000 years. Listen to what I'm about to say. 5,000 years. It, 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 it's, time doesn't have the same effect with God. And so he says, when people... When people say to us, where is your Jesus? It's been 30 years. Where is your Jesus? It's been 2,000 years. They discount the nature of God, that he sits outside of time. And in and, and, and a day, is like 1,000 years. It's like 2,000 or 5,000. You know, I've been helping lead this family and care for this family for, for 34 years. I've been married for 36. Can I tell you, and, and those of you that are old... Um, I won't name any of you, but you know who you are. It's but a moment, isn't it? It's but a moment. When I was in the middle of it, it seemed like a long time, but now it's but a moment. It's but a flash. And, and it's, it, it gets compressed. It gets compressed. It's but a moment now. And that's how it's going to be when Jesus comes. Yeah, it, it's been a long time for us living out our days, but, but it'll be compressed. It'll be but a moment in, in eternity. All right, these scoffers don't get the nature of God. The third, the third thing that Peter says about them, arming us and how to respond to them, he says, they dismiss the mercy of God. Look at verse 9. The Lord does not delay His promises, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Here Peter tells them they can scoff, but the reason that Jesus hasn't come back is he desires none to perish, but all to come to repentance. I tell you what, for effect, and maybe to just zero this in on your heart, I'm going to read that again. They can scoff at us for his, his return. They can make fun. They can deride us. They can say, hey, your, 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 your Jesus hasn't come back yet. But he says they, they miss something. They, miss, they dismiss the mercy of God. And they dismiss what, G, what Peter says here, that God has not sent Jesus yet because he desires none to perish, but all to come to repentance. Now, my own understanding of Peter's teaching is that God desires all men everywhere to be a part of his kingdom. Not just all kinds of men, not just all pre-selected men, but literally God desires all men and the reason why he's being patient is he's giving them opportunity to respond to his grace. His coming is related. Uh, his, his coming or not coming is related to more time. Is not related to more time or to time. It's related to repentance. It's related to his desire to see more people put their trust and their confidence in him. That's what he desires. This past week I went over to Williamsburg. And many of you, if not all of you, have been there. And uh, I got on the bridge. There's nobody in front of me because, I mean, the clock is turning on the hour. And I see it in the distance, and it's on the hour. 
And I'm, and I'm, and I'm, I'll admit it, I'm doing 65 down the bridge to the ferry, right? <laughs> Trying to beat the, the stop sign down. But about halfway there, I see it. And the little thing goes down, you know, with the stop sign. I see it. I slow down to a good speed of 15. And all of a sudden, it goes back up. And I'm back up to 65 in a hurry. (laughs) They waited for me. They had patience and they waited for me and they put the thing back up, which never happens. They waited for me. I rolled my window down and I said, man, thank you for waiting for me. He said, no problem. I tell you, it felt so good that they cared for me, which I know in my heart that it had something to do with something else. But, uh, <laughs> but they waited for me. In the last 2,000 years, now track with me for a second. In the last 2,000 years, billions of people have been given life and have lived their lives. And some of them in great sorrow and pain. But, but billions of people have been born in the last 2,000 years. And those billions of people have had opportunity to respond to God's initiative in their hearts. And they've had an opportunity. Millions of them, I'm assuming millions of them have responded to His grace. And they're going to be part of that great entourage that's going to skip forth like calves let out of, the, out of the stall. And they're going to be a part of his eternal kingdom. And all of that is because of Jesus and God being in the spirit, being patient, being patient, wanting more people to come to faith. Now, I thought about this, and I, I don't know, I don't know how, to, how to process this exactly. But, you know, when Jesus comes back, some people are going to get cut off prematurely. What I mean by that is, is this, okay, so people are always being born. So, so maybe Jesus would never come back if God's always going to be patient, you know, always wanting everybody to have an opportunity. You see, you follow what I'm saying here? People are being born, so more people are being added. So when these get to the end, well, he's got to start again because there's new people, right, that are coming. I don't know how to process all that because Jesus is coming. He is coming and there will be an end. But I'm telling you, this is what we say to the scoffers. We say to the scoffers, you don't understand the mercy of God. You don't understand the loving kindness of God who desires that all come to faith, that all come to repentance, that, that, that all repent and come to him. So be awake, be aware, be armed. But here's, here's what Peter finally says. Here's the fourth heading that I've chosen. Be assured. Don't be shaken, beloved. Jesus is coming again. Don't don't be knocked off your confidence spot. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord, Peter says, will come like a thief. The day of the Lord, the day of judgment, the day of the return of Jesus, it is coming, but it's going to come like a thief. It's going to come when people aren't expecting it. It's going to come when people aren't looking for it because no thief comes when you're sitting on the front porch with your shotgun. He always comes when you're not expecting it, when you're not home or when you're asleep. That's when the thief comes. And he says, that's what it's going to be like. The thief is like, Jesus is coming like a thief. You're not going to be expecting it. And it will be a day of fire. So Peter continues on that day, verse 10, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will be burned will burn and be dissolved and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed since all these things are to be dissolved in this way. 
It is clear that what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire. The elements will melt with heat. But based on his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Now, here's a question that we should ponder, and I have pondered. Maybe you have pondered. Since we can't ask Peter for, quali- uh, for clarification, wouldn't it have been so cool to be a part of the early church? And when you didn't understand something Peter said or Paul said or whatever, you got to sit down with them and say, Peter, what, what does that mean exactly? Right? We don't have that privilege. So we do our best to understand. But, but here's, here's a clarification question from Peter's words. Will the fire consume and destroy the cosmos as we know it? Will every star and every planet and everything that we know when Jesus comes again, is he going to roll up the cosmos as it says in Revelation, roll it up and and destroy it and burn it and, and build all new planets and all new stars and all of that? Or will the fire discriminate and consume and destroy the ungodly, the false teachers, the angels and everyone who's rejected the Lord? You understand the question? When Peter talks about this fire and he uses the words like this, the elements will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and its works will be uh, disclosed since all things are to be dissolved in this way. You know, is he he saying when he says the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat, is he talking about the whole cosmos? Or is he talking just about these unbelieving folks who have rejected him? I mean, I've pondered that question my entire Christian life. In the early years, I would have told you that I thought Jesus, God was going to start from whole cloth. That he was burning it all up and going to create it all over again. I don't think that anymore. I think that in the same way that God destroyed the earth by water, which meant he didn't destroy the world and do away with it and create another one, but he destroyed all of mankind with water. I think in the same way, he will destroy all evil and all wickedness and all who have rejected him, I believe the fire will destroy them, but not the entire cosmos. If I'm wrong, I mean, you see it different, that's fine. But that's how I see this. Remember what Peter said in verse 6 of the previous chapter? He said, God reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is coming to the ungodly. God rained down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, and he killed every single person there except for Lot his two daughters, and his wife. God let them escape. Of course, his wife didn't make it far enough before she turned around and she was destroyed. But Lot and his two daughters got out, but everybody else was burned to extinction by the fire from God. And Peter says, making them an example of what's coming to the ungodly. Uh, The imagery of Revelation is a lake of fire that consumes the faithless. Isaiah said the fires will not be quenched until they consume the bodies of God's enemies. So regardless of, of whether you think it's destroying all the cosmos or just God's enemies, know this. Here's what Peter says. Know this. Be assured of this. There's coming a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. It's coming in new heavens and a new earth, whether it's this cosmos 2.0 or whether it's a whole new cosmos 1.0, right? Whichever it is, here's the truth, a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness reigns will be our home forever. 
Imagine this, no more, no more selfishness on my part or your part. No more wickedness, no, no more walking in rebellion to God. No more struggle between loving God and loving myself. No more of that. No more marriage problems. No more children problems. No more friendship problems. No more bad neighbor problems. You know, it's hard to picture a kingdom with, with no evil in it, but yet that's the promise. Now, I'm almost finished, but there's a few more verses. And in these final closing verses of chapter 3, Peter's just sort of laid out this thing that we're to be aware of. Stay awake, be awake, be aware, be armed, be prepared to give an answer, and, and then be assured be assured, Jesus is coming. Be assured, everybody, Jesus is coming. And, and he, he has only retarded his return because of his mercy, because of his nature. That's the only reasons why he hasn't returned yet. So be assured he's coming. But as he closes, he, he gives them some challenges. Look at verse 11. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be. Hey, Asian minor Christians, this is the kind of person you ought to be in light of what I've just said. Bacon's Castle gathered people today. This is the kind of person you ought to be in light of all that Peter's just said to us. Verse 14, therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, yada, 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 let me tell you how to live. Therefore, because Jesus is coming, Peter's going to give us five desired applications. These are five things that he expects of us to, to be, do, in response to what he's just said about the second coming of Jesus. And this is where it really gets, this really, really gets fun. This is where it gets personal. This is where it gets applicational. This is where I want you to do some self-evaluation with, uh, with your own life. So here's the first one. Stay expectant. What are you to do in light of everything Peter just told us in this final chapter? Stay expectant. Verse 12, as you wait for the day of God. Verse 14, therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things. Peter's idea is that we're not losing heart, that we're waiting. Now, he doesn't say this, but I, I, I obviously believe that he doesn't mean wait absent-mindedly, but he's saying wait with expectancy. That's implied when he says, as you wait, wait with expectancy. So here's what I'm saying to you. Stay expectant. Live on the edge of your seat, right? And waiting for the return of Christ. Anxiously looking for it. Now you're, you're asking yourself, how do I do that? How do I live with expectancy in the return of Jesus? How do I do that? I have only one solution for us. I, I, think, I think it's how we would do it. We must continually pray for His return. We must continually ask for it. We must continually thank God for it. We must make it a central item of our praying. I tell you what, men, when you're up here praying for us on Sunday morning, if you think about it, why not pray for the return of Jesus? Verse 12 actually says this. Look at it with me. It says, as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Do you see that? As you wait for the day and hasten its coming. Peter says we can hasten its coming. How do I hasten its coming? I have no idea other than to suggest it's with our prayers. We hasten his coming by saying, Lord, please come. By praying, God, please send Jesus. Please come again. That's how we hasten his coming. 
That's all I can figure. Here's what John prays in the Revelation. He says, I can't remember what he says prior to this, but he kind of ends his prayer by saying, anybody remember? Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So I think the key to living expectantly is for us to pray and to pray, Jesus, come, come. We need you, come. We long for your coming. Please come. I've told you this before, but when Shep died, something happened in my heart and I live with a much greater expectancy than I ever did. And I know why, because I long to see my son again. And I, and I told you, and I know that when Jesus comes, I get to see him again. Not only will I get to see him, I'll get to see him, I'll get to hold him, and I'll get to kiss him, because he'll be resurrected unto life again. I'm talking about physical, immortal life, and I'll get to see him again. And I told you also, forgive me for saying it again, but I told you also how I struggled with that. How I was weeping at my desk saying, Lord, I know I love you more than Shep. I really believed that. But Lord, it's Shepherd that I want to see. And God saying to me, it's okay because you and I are not separated. And the reason you want to see Shepherd is because you are separated from him now. I hope it's okay to say this, but Bill and I sat down this week and had a few moments conversation about Miss Dottie and Shepherd. And we both cried. And we both said we look forward to seeing them again. We look forward to seeing them again. I long for the return of Jesus. And I live with this expectancy because I know it means resurrection and renewal and reunion and immortality and all of those things. Whatever works for you to help you be expectant of the return of Jesus, do it. Do it. But at least let's all of us seek to make prayer a part of how we live in expectancy of the return of Jesus. Here's the second thing. Stay faithful. I think really this is at the heart of what Peter wants to say to his readers and to us today. Verse 11. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Verse 14. Therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight. Since we understand that judgment is coming, since we understand that Jesus is coming, since we understand that a kingdom where righteousness dwells is coming, here's what Peter says. Make every effort, guys, to be faithful to God. Make every effort to live in holiness and godliness. Those are not my words. Those are his holy conduct, godliness. Make every effort to be found not having spot or blemish in his sight. We should want to live holy. Now, God knows your weaknesses. God knows you're weak. God knows you struggle. God knows you fall. He's not making excuses for us. I'm not making excuses for you and me either. I'm simply telling us that God knows our, our weakness. He knows how pro, prone we are to wander. We sing about that in our hymns. But nonetheless, Peter is urging us, be faithful to God. Live godly, everyone. Live holy. Don't allow yourself and your hurt or your, your wanting to please yourself. Don't let yourself hurt the heart of God by your own sin. The desires of our broken and fallen will can be really strong. Let's face it. 
I mean, every one of you is willing to be honest. You'll say that my broken will has such strong desires to please myself. But God has given us what we need. Sin is greater. Sin is great, excuse me, but God is greater. Does that ring a bell? Sin is great, but God is greater. Sin is great, but God is greater. We sing that song that has that like 10 times. God, sin is great. God is greater. Peter starts this letter by saying, God has given us everything we need for godliness. Everything we need. And so when I fail, it's not on God, it's on me because he's given me everything. And here Peter says, in light of the second coming of Jesus, in light of the fact that that Jesus is coming to judge the lost, the wicked, and he's coming to give eternal life and righteousness to all who love him, that he's saying, look, in light of that, live for God now in this moment. Live for God now in light of the future. Number three, Here's my third application, third challenge from Peter. Stay calm. Verse 14. Therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight at peace. Make every effort to be found at peace. If I was to condense the, the, the two things, separate them, he would be saying, be, make every effort to be found at peace. Don't worry. Trust the Lord. So much in this life wants to rob you of your peace. The pain of life robs us of peace. And the answer was in Kelly's song last week. If you, if, you, if you missed it, it's on YouTube. I asked Michael to put it there. It was so good. And Kelly encouraged us last week. I just knew theologically it was going, the song was going to say, because God's got a wonderful plan in the midst of your pain and, and he's working out something. That, that may be true, but that's not what Kelly sang. What Kelly sang was this, in the midst of your peace, I mean, in the midst of your pain, Jesus is going to be with you and he's never going to leave you. He's going to carry you. He's going to walk with you. He's going to be there. So be at peace. He's not leaving you. He's staying with you. So here he's saying to us, I think, stay calm. Be at peace. And to help this, to help him with this point, verse 15, he says, also regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. He speaks about these things in all his letters. What things? What we're talking about, the second coming of Christ and the kingdom to come. There are some things hard to understand in them. And indeed, we'd all agree some of Paul's things are hard to understand. The untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction, as they also do with the rest of Scripture. Here's what Peter is saying with that, that bit about Paul. He's saying, listen, remember, be at peace because God's delay is about your salvation. God's delay is about people being saved. God's delay is about his kingdom and people getting to be a part of it. And he says, remember how Paul used to talk about about this all the time. Don't forget what Paul said about this. Remember, Paul founded most of the churches to whom he's writing. And he said, remember how Paul talked to you about these things? I get it. Some things that Paul said were hard and people twist them. But you know what? Just like with other scriptures, take Paul's writings and use them to stay at peace, to stay calm in your heart. And you remember, so here's an example to the Thessalonians. Remember, people were were bothering them that they'd missed the return of Jesus. 
And he says, man, don't, it's the second Thessalonians, I think, don't, don't think that you've missed the second coming of Jesus because this is what's going to precede the second coming of Jesus. And, and so Paul was constantly encouraging them, be at peace, you haven't missed it. And Peter says to them, you stay at peace. You stay at peace too in your heart. So everyone, take a deep breath. If you're in pain this morning, or if pain hits you next week, next year, 10 years from now, remember this if you can. Take a deep breath and choose peace. Because Jesus is with you. He's not going to leave you. He's going to walk by your side. He's going to be right there with you. And you can be at peace in your heart with Him. Number four, stay vigilant. Verse 17. Therefore, dear friends, since you know this in advance, be on your guard so that you're not led away by the errors of lawless people and fall from your stable position. Peter says, be vigilant. Don't don't be led astray. Don't doubt the return of Jesus. Don't fall away from Jesus. So many have and so many will. Listen to me. I'm going to say that again. So many have fallen away from Jesus and so many will. And from our perspective... And again, you know, hear me out here because I'm not trying to make a theological statement. I'm just trying to say from our perspective, people have had salvation. They've once possessed it and now they've lost it. Now, thankfully, God's the final arbiter of that. You're not. And you don't have to worry about who had it and who didn't have it and who lost it. But having tasted, they've now rejected. Having become unfruitful where they once were fruitful. They've become blind and short-sighted where they once could see. They've stumbled on their entry into the kingdom of God. All of that's from chapter 1 in Peter's writings. Here's my point. So many who follow Jesus fall away. Are you going to be one of them? Peter is saying, do not fall away. Be be vigilant. Don't don't listen to the guy who's going to try to get you to fall from your place of walking and loving Jesus. Do not, do not fall away. Be vigilant. I'm not trying to make a theological statement there. I'm just saying from our perspective, that's the challenge. Number five, and I'm finished with this. So muster up enough listening power for one more point. Stay connected. Here's this final application. Stay connected, verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord. Peter literally says grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus. Knowledge is your understanding of Jesus. Knowledge is your understanding of what the apostles wrote. Knowledge is your understanding of what God desires of you, what Jesus desires of you, what obedience to Jesus looks like. That's what the knowledge is. The grace of God is the life of Jesus in you. The grace of God is His character in you. The grace of God is His his life in you. You living like Him. You being like Him. You demonstrating the kind of character and, and, and... and love and kindness and, and righteousness and justice that he had, you're, you're, you're living that out in your life. Growth in our life is the result of just one thing. You know what it is? It's staying connected to Jesus. That's why I didn't say stay growing. I said stay connecting because I wanted to go to the root. Here's how you grow. You stay connected. Right before his death, Jesus taught us this. He taught it to his disciples, but by extension to us. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. 
The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. Now listen to this, verse 6. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire. They are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want, it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. The key to growing, Jesus says very clearly right here, is what? It's to stay connected. It's to, stay, it's to remain in the vine, to remain in Jesus. He says, if you don't remain in me, you're going to wither. It's like, you know, if, so I, I cut some trees down yesterday and I cut some trees down a month ago or so in my backwoods. And you know, to, when I went back yesterday, those that I cut back before, they were all dried up and they were withering. And you know what? They're going to make great fodder to be burned up in a fire. And that's what Jesus says here. He says, in this present life, you wither, you dry up, you, you burn really well when God destroys his enemies in the final judgment. So Jesus says in verse four, remain in me and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. Listen, unless we stay connected to Jesus, we're going we're gonna to be dried up, we're going to be like a branch that's broken off and, and, and we're going to be gathered for the fire. And Jesus talked about this often. He said, don't love me with lip service. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Why, why do you just give me lip service? Then he said, some people on that day are going to say, Lord, Lord, we did this, we did that. And he's going to say, man, I never knew you. I never knew you. So, so listen, it's, we have to stay connected to Jesus. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Be blessed.